Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Karpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who share how meditation and mindfulness practices change our lives. Our podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio, Apple's pick as one of the 10 best apps of the year. Why download the app? Because life is messy. We get stressed, anxious, have trouble sleeping, we work too hard, we deal with conflict, our hearts get broken, we worry about the state of the world. We meditate because we're human. Our app gives you hundreds of meditations from over 30 leading experts. It helps a lot. And if you haven't tried the app yet, you can now try it for free and explore a starter series plus a sample of some of our favorite guided meditations in the Discover collection. You may also want to check out our new meditation collections this year. Mindful eating, work, authentic leadership, and a special collection just for college students. There's also a new mindful work and sleep basics course. If you've already got the app, check out our new unguided meditation timer where you can create your own meditations with or without our brand new, pretty amazing music tracks. And don't forget the eight free meditations on Alexa. Just ask her to enable Meditation Studio. Today's guest is Fred Kaufman. Fred has led leadership at LinkedIn, advised Google, and conducted many, many, many workshops for leaders around the world. He has his PhD in economics, has taught at MIT, and his newest book is called The Meaning Revolution, The Power of Transcendent Leadership. In the book, he shares that the biggest driver of motivation is actually the chance to serve a larger purpose that is beyond our careers and beyond ourselves. This, he says, is much more relevant than all the material incentives that most companies focus on. He believes that companies who successfully focus their people, teams, and culture around meaning consistently outperform the competition. I love when he says that our most deep-seated, unspoken, and universal anxiety stems from our fear that our lives are being wasted and that this will be our lament when we're at the end of our lives, as he says, if our song is still unsung. This is why meaning during our lives is so darn important. Fred shares so much of his wisdom from the book in this interview. I loved it. Now, here's Fred. Fred, it is so great to have you on Untangle today. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Delighted to be here. Yeah, thank you. So you've written a book called The Meaning Revolution, The Power of Transcendent Leadership. And let's start with what inspired you to write this book. You had a first book that was called Conscious Leadership, so this is your thing. But what inspired you to write this one? There was a small problem that I discovered in uh, conscious business. I mentioned the problem that uh, had been kind of plaguing me since I was a student of economics in Berkeley and then a professor at MIT. And it's the problem that we have two theories of how to get a group of people to work together and put in all the effort. And one theory focuses on the individual and says, it's called agency theory in economics. And it says, Mm -hmm. if you want individuals to be conscientious and accountable, then you need to evaluate their performance based on what they do, the results they produce individually. 
But then there's another theory of the organization as a whole, you could call it nonlinear optimization or systems theory, that says that what people do individually doesn't really matter so much. What matters is how the team works together. And the unfortunate principle is that in systems, you don't get the best of the system while everybody's doing their best. Technically, that says if you want to do the best for the whole, no part should try to do the best for itself. Everybody should sacrifice or surrender to the global objective. But if you compensate people based on what they do individually, it's really hard to tell them to take a bullet for the team and then you shoot them when they get back because right. they say, well, you know, you didn't accomplish your, your KPIs, which is your key performance indicators. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. Let me see how to solve it. And then I started pulling from that thread and it took me 15 years to actually oh, wow. get to the bottom of that problem. I finally managed to find the simple answer to the, this question. And the answer is there is no solution, which drove okay. me crazy. Right. Because uh, you say, what do you mean? There's no solution. Yeah. Paradoxically, what I found is that this is the hardest problem in mathematical economics. I mean, really, there, bar none. I taught mathematics and economics. That's my PhD and what I taught at MIT. So I know what I'm talking about. And mm -hmm. there's no way to solve this problem. I checked with a few of my advisors, one of them, a Nobel laureate, who wrote one of the quotes for the book. And he said, yep, yeah, you're right. The shocking answer is that the hardest problem in economics has a soft solution. The way to solve this problem is not through a, a good incentive system, but to create a team spirit, to have people work together because they want to, because they care about one another, they trust one another, they're committed to one another. And the one that inspires that kind of teamwork, mm -hmm. it's what I call the a transcendent leader, a leader that will offer people a project that will help them get beyond their individual self or egoic concerns and joining some great enterprise that transcends in space and time. It's so shocking that something that starts so mathematical and so apparently left brain then ends up being completely, I would say, the word spiritual. I mean, it really demands people to transcend their own individual egos and start feeling like a group identity and uh, concerning themselves with the benefit of people who haven't been born or, mm -hmm. or posterity. And it, I found that such a surprising yeah. turn of events that I wanted to write about it. And uh, yeah. that's the book. It confused me a little bit because I feel like so many people and maybe especially people in business, maybe everyone, they're wired to focus on ego. And most people have been trained even through school and college to focus on yes. ego. And then when you start thinking about like the nonlinear group, you could look at cults. I mean, cults are probably a good example of transcendent leadership in some ways, yes. right? Because it sort of subsumes the individual. And so I'm just kind of curious because I think this is such a complicated topic. And in the beginning, I thought a lot of what you were talking about was that the cause or the mission that's greater than each individual team member is what really drives us. But I feel like there's so many different layers in there. Wow. Well, first, I want to praise you. That's a very keen observation that most people think of leadership as a good thing. And uh, strong leadership can go both ways. You have, just to take a typical example, Hitler was a great transcendent leader, right. or Pol Pot, or Jim Jones, to go back to religious cults. I'd say, well, people can take that energy of inspiration and go like Anakin to the dark side. Right. And then instead of being a Jedi, you become the force of the emperor trying to destroy everything that's good. And they're both examples of, I would say, strong or great leadership. There's no inherent 
ethical safeguard in leadership. And that's why I emphasize so much that the work that a person has to do, their own personal work, is really like a Jedi master because the stronger you develop the capabilities to inspire people, the stronger is the pull towards the dark side, which is ego, more power. And there's a part of the book where I talk about what's called technically the power paradox, that people achieve power by being good, by offering something that others feel inspired by, but then they get drunk, so to speak, or drugged with power. And I mean this literally because the research says that powerful people will light up the parts of their brains in functional MRIs, which are the same parts that light up with cocaine or gambling addiction or alcohol. When you get addicted to power, you just want more and more and more. Nothing is ever enough. Right. And then a kind of ego takes over. You start by being egoless, by creating a project that transcends people. And that's what inspires people to join. And then you kind of suck it, suck all the energy back towards your ego and aggrandizing yourself. It's actually a very dangerous path mm. for individuals and organizations to take. I tell people, you have to walk in there very carefully and taking a lot of safeguards. And that's why personal development and a lot of what's normally called inner work becomes so yeah. significant to me. It would be like giving a loaded weapon to, to right. someone that doesn't have any ethics. That, yeah. that weapon in the wrong hands can be very dangerous. So I fully agree with you about the paradox of leadership. And if someone doesn't do the personal work, it will backfire. Yeah. You were saying, how do you like untangle this knot between the education that we all get about be number one and you have to do your job, which is not wrong. There's something very useful about it. It's, it's just dangerous because it's half a truth because right. you have to do your job. But if you look at the movie Moneyball, for example, what does it mean to do your job? Most people think that to do their jobs is to do what they've been paid to do or what they've been hired to do ostensibly. So, for example, I say in baseball, you play your position. If you hit a lot of home runs and you do a lot of the individual statistics in a way that will give you primacy, then you're a very expensive player and everybody thinks you're great. The problem is that your own individual performance doesn't win the game. One of the rules of teamwork is that the team wins or loses together. Mm -hmm. It'd be like if I'm on a boat and I tell my sailor, oh, well, we're in a catamaran and your pontoon is sinking, so I'm fine. I mean, it's your problem. There's no such thing as the hole is on your side of the boat. <laughs> we're all in the same boat. So the real value of any player is not what the player does, but it's the contribution of this player to making the team win. When I ask, I go around the world and I ask somebody in any business, what's your job? I say, oh, I'm, I'm in accounting or I'm in legal or I'm uh, manufacturing or yeah, I run a plant. And I joke with you. I say, no, you're wrong. I say, well, what do you mean? You're crazy. And I say, I'll bet you a hundred dollars and in one minute you change your mind. Of course, nobody bets with me because they know there's, there's something <laughs> fishy there. <laughs> yeah. But the point is that when someone says, I'm a defensive player, what's your job? Well, they'll say it's to stop goals, I want to, to change to soccer, to give the soccer example. And I say, no, your job is to help the team win. That's your job, whatever it takes. Because if you're losing 1-0 and there's five minutes to go, you should go on the attack and try to tie the game. Now, going on the attack and trying to tie the game is going to increase the probability that you get scored against in a counterattack. So if you're trying to minimize the probability of being scored against, you shouldn't go on the offensive. You should stay back and protect your goal and say, well, losing 1-0, it's a lot better for me than losing 2-0. But for the team, losing 1-0, losing 2-0, it's exactly the same. So for the team, it's much better if you take the risk and you go forward, you go on the offensive, mm -hmm. and you help the offensive to tie the game. But if your KPI is goals allowed, 
then you're always going to feel that 2-0 is a lot worse than 1-0. Right. That's the paradox. But the real value of a player is not what the player does, but it's the player's contribution to the team. And the whole movie Moneyball is about, but that's extraordinarily difficult to assess. Maybe in soccer or baseball, you have a lot of statistics. But if you see the movie, this whiz kid, who's a, really an economist from Yale, he says, well, we need to sell high and buy low. So let's sell the good players, the apparently good players, which are individually good and are very expensive, and use the money to buy not so flashy players, which are cheap, because nobody thinks they're really good. But in fact, statistics prove they help their teams to win more than the expensive players. I don't know if you remember Mm. the movie, but do you remember what happens when the manager starts doing that? I don't remember that movie. I'm going to have to watch it. The fans want to fire the manager. So this guy's crazy. He's firing our best players. Because everybody's thinking of the best players. So he's under serious threat of being fired. He holds the line. And, well, the Oakland A's ended up winning the championship with the lowest budget ever. It was literally a home run. But it didn't look like it was going to be a home run. It looked like this was a terrible decision. Because, as you say, we're all educated and, in a sense, we're confused. We live in a mirage to assess the performance of an individual. When the true measure is, are you helping your company win? Mm -hmm. And there are ways to help the company win that will make you look bad, for sure. Just like the defensive player going on the offensive is not going to look so good. Your KPIs Mm -hmm. or your key performance indicators are going to suffer when you subordinate to the team. Now, on the other hand, you can't just say, well, we all win or we all lose, because then you may have what the problem that's called in economics, free riders, which are Mm -hmm. people who will ride other people's coattails, either because they have less talent or because they want to spend less effort. And if you don't have a way to weed those out to find out who's really pulling his or her weight and who isn't, you're going to get stuck with low performers that are lazy because the high performers, which are conscientious, are going to go to other organizations where they get paid the marginal value of their product. Right. So competitively, you can't afford to pay everybody the same and say, oh, we all win or we all lose. That's nice for teamwork, but essentially gives rise to the same problem they have in communism, where it's impossible to know who really worked hard and who didn't. And that dilemma is shockingly, at least for me, I've been thinking about this for 25 years since I finished my doctorate. Luckily, I didn't write a dissertation on this because nobody would have approved my dissertation, finishing with a conclusion that, well, I tell people a joke with the conclusion of this. It's, It's the joke of the two hikers that meet a bear and one of them sits down and starts putting running shoes. And the other says, what are you doing? You can't outrun the bear. And the hiker says, I don't have to. I only have to outrun you. That's really the conclusion of the whole reasoning, because as you say, everybody sucks so much. I mean, everybody's so awful at this, that if you only suck a little bit less than your competitors, Mm. well, you win the game. Because everybody's indoctrinated and educated and totally convinced that the only way to succeed is by focusing on individual performance. So if you can create this team spirit, and we don't have any problem of speaking about team spirit in sports, but we have a lot of... I would say, skepticism and awkwardness about talking about spirit in business. Yet spirit is animating force. If you can create the inspiration as an animating force, if you're the kind of leader that people will follow because you're offering them a chance to transcend and you have the right ethical values and you're committed to the mission and so on, then you can easily manage this condition much better than any of your competitors. And that's all you need to help consumers and propel humanity forward. It's not like the bear that the other one is going to get eaten, but they'll have to adjust or they'll extinct. And at the end, the ones that win in the market are the consumers. 
So let me ask you another question because you have a quote in the books that a transcendent leader gives you an opportunity to infuse your life with meaning, heart, mind, and soul into a fulfilling and noble mission. And you also talk about how people align under these missions. Mm -hmm. And I am really curious about what happens when employees don't buy in that's number one. And number two, you talked a little bit earlier about personal work that leaders have to do. What is the personal work that leaders and team players have to do? If employers don't buy in, then you're not a leader. That would be like, what kind of artist are you if nobody wants to see your performance? That's a dead end. Essentially, you don't qualify for the job because the way I define leadership is to elicit internal commitment. Mm -hmm. So leadership is not a position, and it has nothing to do with formal authority. Leadership is about moral authority and about your ability to elicit the free and informed choice of the people that are your, I would say, more than followers. I call them your investors, because these people are investing energy in a joint project. They are not people that will do what you say. They are people who essentially are co-creating this project with you. So it's all about that. Your leadership capability or your leadership quotient is precisely your capacity to inspire people and get their buy-in. If they don't buy in, well, I would start by looking in the mirror and saying, what is it about me mm -hmm. that is not able to elicit this commitment even when I pay people and I offer them a chance to grow, to have autonomy, to support their families, to buy nice things. So money definitely is important, but benefits are also important. It's the first layer of material concerns that you're offering people to take care of. And then there's all this additional layer of moral or spiritual mm -hmm. concerns, which are more psychological. And if you create a community of people that trust and support and, and I would say care for one another, mm -hmm. and there's this team cohesion, that's incredibly attractive for all of us. We all want to belong. As Maslow said, you know, once we take care of the basic necessities, then we want a community. We want to belong. And then we want to achieve. So we want a community that will give us also the autonomy to be ourselves while connected to others. And then we want to transcend. We want to not just be achievement-oriented, but we want to actualize ourselves and transcend. Now, if you offer all that, people will always be inspired. If you have a mission, now, as I said, I'm not forgetting about the dark side. You can use everything I just said to yeah. take people to the dark side. And a gangster can be a good leader and inspire people say, yeah, I know we're going to kill the opposite the gang and we're going to be the most powerful and people will fear us and they'll remember us. And okay, that can inspire some kind of people. You have to find mm -hmm. a match between your values and the values of the people that you will attract. Right. I would say, that's the name of the game. It's the capacity to elicit the internal commitment. And the inner work that you have to do essentially is to undo all the programming you receive throughout your life but that that's, leadership that's is about building power. <laughs> you only have to suck less than the others. It's, you know, you're running a race. So you don't have to be Gandhi or you don't have yeah. to be some religious master like Jesus or Buddha. You just have to be less of a the word I'm thinking is not suitable for right. public uh, discourse, but less of a jerk, a than, jerk. Jerks again. than all the other people that are competing, in a sense, with you to attract the best talent. And I tell you, the bar is really, really low. Yeah. Just being aware of your tendencies, just being aware that people are not following you to build your ego up, but people are following because you're giving them a chance to grow. And just being mindful of that, and in a sense, inverting the authority pyramid and saying, it's not like the base is the 
all the people and you are at the top telling them what to do, but you are the enabler, the supporter, and the person that's kind of propelling them from behind. But they are the ones that are really getting the job done. That awareness, it's more than enough to distinguish yourself and attract, develop, and keep your best people because where would anybody want to live? Right, if you can get to that place. But you do coaching and workshops to help train transcendent leaders. What are some of the biggest challenges in the workshops that you do? It's like a plane. I say, look, (laughs) sometimes I I make this joke. It's like, we're about to close the door and this plane is going to Miami. If you're not going to Miami, this would be an excellent chance to get off the plane. And I say to people, we're going to do this kind of work. And if you don't want to do this kind of work, this would be an excellent chance to sign off and don't waste your time on everybody else's. Because in the workshop, there's personal work, but there's also group work. And I would say the hardest thing, the absolute hardest thing is a paradox that just boggles the mind. And that's that what tastes good is not always good. Mm. And what is good doesn't always taste good. But we're genetically programmed. I mean, this is literally Darwinism. We're programmed to look for foods that are sweet because the sugar, it's a cheap source of energy. It doesn't burn clean. It hurts us in the long term. But the genes don't care very much about the long term. We are genetically engineered to get to puberty, reproduce, and die. We're not developed to be happy, to have meaning in our lives, to have fulfillment, to connect with others, to love, to grow, nothing like that. We're genetically programmed just to carry genes from one generation to the other. And if you just surrender to what feels good or what tastes good, you're always going to end up shooting yourself in the foot. I mean, if you want to have a happy life or a meaningful life, if you just want to get to puberty, procreate and die, then just do whatever you feel like doing. (laughs) And when people say, well, but I don't feel like that. Yeah, I don't feel like going to the gym. I certainly don't feel like dieting. I don't feel like going to sleep instead of playing video games or watching TV at night. I don't feel like any of that. And yet I choose to eat with my mind. I don't eat with my taste because if I eat with my tongue, I'm going to eat the wrong things. I know. I mean, I love ice cream. I love French fries. I love, you name a bad food, I'm attracted to it. And so is 99% of humanity. So if you do what feels right. In the workshops, what I teach is so simple. If you look at my material, by the way, there are websites where I put all my material for free so people can go and see videos if if they go to LinkedIn or other places just look for my name there's like 80 or actually 100 papers and videos that I put there which cover everything and it's remarkably simple like for example if you disagree with someone and they are telling you what they think just bite your tongue don't interrupt them listen to them and make sure you understand by summarizing what they said and checking with them I mean, what could be simpler? That's it. I mean, literally, that's it. I don't know a single person. First, nobody does that naturally, because when someone tells you something that you disagree, you want to interrupt them and set them right, so to speak. Of course, they're trying to do the same with you. So that leads to an impasse that can't be resolved. But if you just listen and you try to understand what's right in what the person says, and then you give them an argument that they will find coherent and respectful, and they say, yes, that's what I mean. They might try to push and say, that's why I'm right and you're wrong. So, well, I'm not saying I agree with you, but I'm trying to understand. I want to make sure that I really got what you were trying to say. And when the person says, yes, yes, you got it, then say, thank you. Now, I'd like to add my point of view. Not, I'm not saying you're wrong, but I have maybe additional information or other perspective that I'd like to add to the mix, and then we see which way to proceed. 
just doing that seems so obvious. I mean, rationally, when we're cold and we're right. like cold, I mean, in a normal state, I'm telling you this. I say, of course, what could be more reasonable than this? No one. I mean, literally, I don't know a single person that can do this without extensive training. And just to confess something myself, it's like if the intensity of the conversation gets high enough, I have a lot of difficulty doing it. I may not do it. I may just get triggered. Mm. And I, I fall into some ego trap and I'll interrupt someone and say, no, 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 you're wrong. I don't know if something is really outrageous to me or irritates me to the point where I'm just completely derailed in my discipline by someone saying something that I find abominable, something that I think may be unethical. Of course, the person doesn't think it's unethical. They don't think it's abominable, but I do. And I want to convince them very quickly that because yeah. I have this fear, if I stay silent, it looks like I'm acquiescing or I'm allowing the person's speech to stand. And then I get impatient. That's to give you an example. So yeah. the material really, really simple, but it's really, really difficult because it goes against the grain of what feels good. Yeah. And that makes so much sense. Do you meditate and do you teach meditation and mindfulness practices as a uh, part of workshops? Absolutely. I'd say it's the debugging mode of your brain and your nervous system. Yeah. In I a love sense, that. we're wired to do the wrong thing. So I work in high tech. So we're wired to do the wrong thing. We have programs that evolutionarily have been, I mean, both in the hardware and software on how to behave. And if you just operate those programs, you can't change them. In a sense, you have to make the programs an object of intervention. And then you have to, instead of having them be a subject that they are operating from the background, you have to make them an object by looking at them. And that requires stopping the activity and taking a different point of view. And that's exactly the objectification capability of meditation. I teach meditation in a very neuroscientific way because I work with people that are really hard and crusty and they won't buy the, oh, you know, meditation, you get to experience bliss and all that. They're not into bliss, but they are into efficiency and they realize because when they hear the tools or the principles, they say, oh, yeah, it all sounds very reasonable. And then they say, okay, now that you acknowledge that, I'm going to trip you up and in about three minutes, you're going to betray everything you mm-hmm. said you were going to just here in a role play. It's like an Aikido encounter where I'm going to challenge them and no person, they interrupt me, they don't explain. I mean, they break every single rule that they said three minutes ago they were going to follow because they were so simple. I said, well, if you want to change that unconscious programming, you need to understand it. You need to see yourself as an object of intervention, at least that layer of yourself. And that means you have to go to a deeper layer and take that point of view. And that's exactly what we do with meditation. You start by observing your thoughts in an impartial, non-judgmental manner and just notice where do you go and what happens to your mind when you let it be. And people are shocked. I mean, people have been shocked for thousands of years. Anybody who had little experiment in five minutes, I say, oh my God, my mind is so wild and I never noticed. People who have never made it are so much fun to do this with. I tell them, count your breath. And then after five minutes, how many people succeeded? And everybody lost count. You know, they think it's a (laughs) trivial thing to count breaths for five minutes and then for hard-nosed business people, that kind of challenge makes it really interesting. It's like, oh my God, I thought I could control my thoughts and, and I can't even pay attention to a single thing as simple as counting my breaths for five minutes. Yeah. I lose track. It's like, right. oh, that's, that's how I do it. And that's perfect because that's what meditation is all about, is getting us off of our autopilot behavior. You say something else in the book I like this quote, and this gets into the higher purpose question, but I believe that the most deep-seated, unspoken, and universal anxiety in all of us is the fear that our life is being wasted, that death will surprise us when our song is still unsung. Why do we need to connect to this higher purpose? And when you're training people, how are you getting people in touch with this so that they're really taking 
this idea of higher purpose seriously when many of them may not have approached it before? I don't usually talk to people about higher purpose. I talk to them about something that is very present and very real for them, which is the fear of death. We have a problem, so to speak, as human beings. And that's, although I'm not a dualist in philosophy, but I'll use dualistic language. We have a mind or we exist in a mind space that is infinite. So we can encompass an infinite past and an infinite future. So time and space, from a mind perspective, there's no boundary in the mind. But our bodies, our material nature, of course, is limited. This duality means everybody confronts the terror of discovering that there will be a day when I'm not here anymore and my life is limited. And it usually happens, you know, three, four years old, just like happened to the Buddha when he says it's the old man and the sick man and the dead man. And he kept asking the attendant, oh, but is that what's going to happen to me and all my friends and my dad? And the answer is yes. That creates a very significant, it's called the terror of death. And then there's something called terror management theory. How do you manage that terror? And each one of us has strategies to manage that terror. Most of them are horrible. <laughs> they don't work and they create terrible things like, for example, being a daredevil and saying, you know, I challenge death and I'll, I'll jump off cliffs and I'll do crazy stuff just to prove that I'm not afraid. Or I'll just have a lot of pleasure and I'll consume all sorts of substances or activities that give me pleasure. And then if I have all this pleasure, then I don't have to think about the limited nature of my material existence. The only thing that apparently works in the long term is something that's called the cool consideration of death. That is not to be afraid of death, but to actually meditate on it, just like most of the monks in the different traditions do, to realize that our time in this embodied form is limited, which is absolutely obvious, but very few people want to think about it because it can get hot very quickly and it gets frightening and terrorizing. If you do it in a cool manner, considering what's the opportunity, then there is a way to be symbolically immortal, not materially immortal, but there's a way to leave something that will kind of propel our energy signature beyond our conscious embodiment. And that is something that people really understand when it starts with the fear of death, because everybody wants to do something meaningful. I mean, I don't know any single person that doesn't want to be remembered. I tell the story in the book when I went to Egypt, there's the temples, and these temples are the Egyptians saying, think of us, remember us. We were great people. We conquered others. We did all these great feats, and we want to be remembered. And they are right, because when we go and see those temples, we say, oh, the Egyptians were really great. Oh, look, they have this great empire, and da, 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 da. And then 5,000 years later, Napoleon took over Egypt, and then the soldiers put, Francois was here. They have the graffiti all over the temples. The soldiers were carving their names. And you say, 5,000 years later, the soldiers were doing exactly the same thing that the Egyptians were doing before. And then the British did the same. And then every human being has this desire to leave a mark. Otherwise, what's the point? I mean, what's the meaning of our existence? If it's just this blink in eternity, what difference does it make? When you start thinking like that, you can leave a dark side mark saying doing so much evil that people remember you as a mm-hmm. evil person and fear you. Mm-hmm. Or you can do something benign, something beautiful, something loving, something that will help yeah. others, that others will pay forward and start a wave of goodness in the world. 
it's in general not upset, but I'm disgusted by the way business people are portrayed in the media because business people are portrayed like evil, greedy bastards that are trying to destroy others just for their own benefit. I'm not denying that there are some people like mm. that and I'm afraid of them and that's what I call the dark side. Right. But most people I know are not like that, are the exact opposite like that. They have a dream, they have an idea and yeah. the idea is not to get rich because those who start out trying to get rich, they'll make it. Most of the large companies, which actually made some of the entrepreneurs who started them and the shareholders very rich, started as a beautiful idea that was trying to serve mm -hmm. others. Some of them turned bad after a while, but that the inspiration for people to join a team is always this project that will allow to leave a signature that makes us proud in the world. So when you're teaching the, this transcendent leadership or reading about it, you have a chapter, chapter 11, which I loved, called Get Over Yourself. And so yes. I just wonder the intersection between being able to look at the bigger picture and be motivated by our higher purpose and taking your ego and emotions out of any particular situation. It seems a little... Like it's much more complicated in action than it is in theory, like to become a Exactly, yes. Right, yes. that's why it took you 15 yes. years to write the book <laughs> or to study it. That's why it will take me a lifetime to continue right. getting over myself. And it takes a lifetime for anybody to get over yourself. In fact, I know very few people in the history of humanity that have been able to get over themselves to the point where they enter into a different realm. And they discover the people? truth that was much deeper. Yeah. I would say it's a question that's the same as the question as how do you motivate people to join a company? I tell the story of leadership with my children. I wanted my children to read. So my first strategy was to tell them, well, if you don't read, you can't use your devices, period. And they, yeah. were, they were so terrified that they read. Of course right. they read. But then as they were reading, I just looked at them and they were in such a sour mood. I thought, I don't want them to read. I want them to want to read. Mm. And that's a completely different problem. How do I get them to want to read? That's the same problem of inspiration or motivation. You can't force someone to want to do something. It's a contradiction in terms. So I say, I don't want people to transcend. I don't want people to get over themselves. I would like people to live the most meaningful, happiest lives they care to live. And when I ask people, I start by asking them, what is it that you want to accomplish? What is that is going to make you better than what you are now? What's the change that you envision that will put you in a better place? And then depending on what they say, I try to connect their concern with the need to get over themselves in some small measure. Because whatever they say they are not able to accomplish yet, then I know that this is part of the egoic barrier that they're putting between themselves and their objective. And if they can lower that barrier just a little bit, they can see results that matter to them. So I don't inspire people with, oh, you know, you're going to transcend as a person and as a leader and you'll have the eternal contemplation of the divine. Some of us are motivated by that. Like I personally have to confess that that matters a lot to me. So my own meditation and spiritual work is not inspired by my need to be a better teacher or anything like that. I consider living a happy, meaningful life an end in itself and it matters. But 
for most people, it's a little far, at least at the beginning. So something like I want to increase the capacity of my team to achieve our sales targets, that's enough. Or I would like to reduce the defect rate of my plant by 5% every week. Okay, so what does it take? And it usually takes working together, connecting with other people, listening to them, understanding them, being clear in the commitment. As I said, all those things that don't taste so sweet to the ego. And if the person is committed enough to their I would say their material goals, that will force them to reconsider some of their behaviors that take them to a different level of consciousness or at least a different level of, I would say, operating system. And uh, their program will have to be changed in a way that makes them get over themselves. Yeah. And that's the big challenge, right? Is getting over ourselves. That's why I love that one. Are there always. Uh, always, right? That's the work that we do with our meditation practices and all of our contemplative practices. Are there some other big concepts in the book that we have not gotten to that you want to share? No, to be honest, you've read the book very deeply, which shows me you've gotten over yourself because oh, gosh, you are no. really there. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I, what I say is you're doing the podcast and it would be easy for you to manage the podcast in a way that doesn't require the surrender or the humility to actually read and do your pre-work and you've done it in a beautiful manner. So I just want to use that as an example because you've hit what I consider the main new concepts. You've yeah. really hit on every major point that I would have said is the innovation of this book. So oh, I feel I feel very heard in a way. Oh, well, that's awesome. Read. You've been very read. You have been read. Well, it's a fantastic book. And we'll, at the end of the show, we'll tell people how to get that and also how to get your materials that you've got on the website. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us today, Fred. It's been awesome. It was an absolute delight. Thank you. Thanks so much to Fred for being on Untangle today. The Meaning Revolution is available at all major booksellers. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email me at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. And if you have a minute, will you subscribe to our podcast? And every rating helps as well. So give us a rating. And I hope you'll download Meditation Studio in the App Store. We'll see you next time.